Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Father, we love you. We praise you. We're so looking forward to seeing you. We're so looking forward to your presence here with us um, in your man-child, in your bride. And, um, and from then on, we're looking forward to it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue with uh, We Need to Check Ourselves. This is number two. And I'm going to talk to you just for a moment about praying alone with God because God keeps pushing me to do this. <laughs> well, the, the man-child is coming to choose the bride, just as we see in type when Jesus came as the man-child. He went forth and chose his bride according to john the baptist he that hath the bride is the bridegroom so so we need to be in love with the lord right a personal relationship with him not just through a lot of other people right did jesus teach that we are to have a personal relationship prayer life with god well more than that he commanded it did he call for prayer meetings? Well, that was a rarity. <laughs> um, Matthew 6 and 5. And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have received their reward. So, obviously, the Lord if the only time you do that is when you're with a crowd, it kind of seems to point towards that, doesn't it? But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thine inner chamber, and having shut thy door, here's his command, pray to thy Father who is in secret, and thy Father who seeth in secret shall recompense thee. There it is. So, did Jesus also demonstrate this personal prayer life alone with God? Yes, he did. He was our example in all things. Matthew 14 and 23. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain apart to pray. And when even was come, he was there alone. There it is, okay? And Mark 6, 45 and 46 says, And straightway he constrained his disciples to enter into the boat and to go before him unto the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself sendeth the multitude away. Hmm. And after he had taken leave of them, he departed into the mountain to pray. There it is again. He uh, sent him off <laughs> so he could go pray alone. 
And Matthew 26, 36 through 40, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit here while I go yonder and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and they went a certain way, and began to be sorrowful and sore troubled. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Abide ye here, and watch with me. Okay, so they did. And he went forward a little. Again he went alone to pray. And fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So even when his life was threatened, he sought God personally. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them sleeping. And saith unto Peter, see, they weren't good uh, prayer warriors. They weren't getting alone with God. They got alone and went to sleep. <laughs> and uh, saith unto Peter, what could we you not watch with me for one hour? Luke 6 and 12. And it came to pass in these days that he went out into the mountain to pray. And he continued all night in prayer to God. There it is again. Others followed Jesus' command and example to have a personal prayer life to God. Uh, Acts 10 and 9. Now on the morrow, as they were on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Mm Mm-hmm. Acts 10 and 30, And Cornelius said, Four days ago until this hour I was keeping the ninth hour of prayer in my house. In other words, not in the crowd, right? And behold, a man stood before me in bright apparel, and saith, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Yes. Hallelujah. Well, some are afraid their faith is never enough, but it should be so. We should cast off this fear for He loves us, He cares for us, and He wants to take care of us. Some had a bad relationship to a parent or a spouse, and they see God in the same light and are not sure God loves them and wants to meet their every need as He said. Well, an expectant bride should trust that her groom loves her enough to provide for her uh, like it was with Esther. We have to seek this personal relationship in prayer alone with God, not just in a crowd trusting in their faith. Without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to God. When Jesus ministered to others, he said, Be it unto you according to your faith. And that's so true. When we're before him, he wants us to have faith. And as you have believed, so shall it be unto you. So ask him for the gift of faith to love him and respect him as our provider, our Jehovah Jireh, so on and so forth. Cast out 
uh, double-mindedness and doubt demons and distractions, which are many. That's why I love to do it in the middle of the night, actually. Father is uh, asking us to seek this faith relationship with Him now before the return of the Lord to choose His bride. And if you have this faithful relationship with Him, then adding your faith to others is, is of worth. If you don't have faith, adding your faith to them just drags them down, right? You're depending upon them to have faith, right? Well, um, so then if you got a faith relationship and you join with them and any two of you agree, it's powerful. So ask him for this relationship and forgive everybody from the heart. If you only feel comfortable in a crowd or an eating meeting, then you need to seek this relationship to him now. He got alone with God for 40 days and forgot about the food. Yeah. As I've said, my best talks with Father are when I'm reading the Word because I see things I like and I want and uh, so on and so forth and it reminds me, so I like to pray then. Or in the middle of the night, alone, when there are no responsibilities and everything is quiet. I like it. I don't complain uh, when I don't get a lot of sleep if I've had some good fellowship with the Lord. And that's that's what I end up doing. So we need to get along with God now. Father has been telling me that uh, that many are too busy even religiously busy, to spend time alone with the Lord. So we should check our heart and seek repentance, if so. What is the secret cause of this coming revival? Is it power? Well, some people are seeking power, but they have ulterior motives, right? No, it's a uh, result of the revival. The power is a result of the revival. Is it timing? Well, yeah, that's part of it. The man-child anointing will bring revival, and it won't happen before then. Many people have tried to prime revivals, and it just doesn't work. Although I claim it does, it doesn't. Um, is it praying in vain repetitions? Well, Jesus said no. That won't get you anything. We are to believe that we have received whenever we pray, so therefore you don't need repetition, right? Um, and that's according to Mark eleven twenty three and 24. You speak it and you pray it, and you believe it. You have received it. How many times have we heard uh, that past great revivals were traced to some old ladies uh, praying on their own and believing God? <laughs> Recently I heard one of those. Um I've watched uh, pre-promoted church revivals come and go uh, for like 54 years, and it's always the same. A few people get healed and delivered or just saved in some churches who don't believe in the power of God. Um, this probably would have happened anyway, but they still call it a revival. Well, it's not a revival. But the people didn't seek deliverance of their sins from and by the Lord. 
They trusted that they were in good standing because of their association with a church or a preacher or or what we believe, right? So what's the foundation and preparation for the coming greatest revival? It's the condition so often repeated in scriptures, repent and believe. The churches are full of just except Jesus converts who will miss this opportunity because they think they've done everything they need to do. Now they can sit on a pew and just wait for the rapture. So let's look at the cause and the foundation for this coming revival. Exodus nineteen ten through 12 says this, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Okay, so will it start with the multitudes? No, it will start with the anointed man-child represented by Moses here. And nobody can prime it until then, as it was with Jesus, the man-child. And we just saw the command to uh, sanctify the people and wash their garments. That means clean up their works, basically. But we can prepare to receive it by personal relationship with the Lord and sanctification from our sins. And verse 11 goes on to say, And be ready against the third day. Well, here's some timing. Uh, and I'll just say, as we're going to see, plus 40 days. The third day has to come, and then 40 days have to come. So we're at the, the morning of the third thousand-year day from Jesus, right? For the third day, it goes on to say, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Yes, he will. So he's coming in his man-child reformers by word and spirit to begin revival. And the timing is set. It is set. So when you pray for this, this coming revival, just believe it you have received as he taught you to do with everything that you pray, right? And uh, verse 12 and thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. So to ascend the mountain of the Lord's presence represents death to self. In other words, repentance and sanctification. So it is with Paul who said, You are come unto Mount Zion, Hebrews 12 and 22. And of course, the presence of the Lord is at the top of Mount Zion. And Exodus uh, 24, 12 through 18 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Moses here is a type of the man-child, but this is true of all who want to come into the presence of the Lord through death to self. Okay. You must deny yourself to spend time alone with the Lord. 
And the more you do it, the more you'll love it. So come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee the tables of stone and the law and the commandment which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. You have to have it in order to teach it. It doesn't matter whether you're a mom, a dad, a husband, or a wife, or a man-child. You have to have it in you before you can give it to someone else. Time alone with the Word uh, prepared Moses to come to the people with the glory shining from his face. Amen. And Moses rose up, and Joshua his minister, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us. In other words, stay here, I'm going alone. <laughs> Until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Uh, whosoever hath a cause, let him come near unto them. And Moses went up into the mount, and the cloud covered the mount. That's the glory. Aha. The glory came when he got along with God. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day, well, there's some more timing. But I'm going to say, as we'll see, um, we have to add 40 days to that. <laughs> so we're at the seventh thousand year day from the first Adam, right? So both of those timings are appropriate. He called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire. He got along with God, didn't he? Our God is a consuming fire, the Bible says, consuming the wood, the hay, and the stubble of the old man. That's seems to be the same as climbing the mountain, which is death to self, right? So on the top of the mountain, in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses entered into the midst of the cloud, representing entering the glory cloud, right? The glory of God. And went up into the mountain. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. There you go. So we add to those other timings this timing. 40 days and 40 nights. Now you may say, well, that's pretty tough on me. I got a job to do. Well, you can pray without ceasing. We know that. And also 40 is the number of testing. We get tested by God. Sometimes we're a little confused when we're tested by God, but it's okay. We'll come through it, you know. You know, Jesus, uh, the man-child, also got alone with God and was tested for 40 days, just like this here. That's two witnesses. Both got alone with God, heard Him, and then overcame the enemy, the flesh, and the devil. And they both used fasting Two, in order to weaken the flesh. When you get around God, you got to weaken the flesh. you got to cease from feeding that flesh uh, what it wants, right? 
So that's more than just physical fasting. So why is food nowadays so involved with drawing near to God and seeking revival? It's just the opposite, isn't it? Right? Busyness, even religious busyness or constant fellowship, which we all consider good and we all enjoy, you know, uh, but it robs this most important time of soul-searching with God and prevents the revival in one's heart where it has to begin. I watched for years those who came to the Lord at the same time as I did, and uh, where are they now? They spent no time with what I call the two-edged sword because one of those edges is for self. Remember, if you're going to climb the mountain and go into God's presence, you have to die, right? You have to give up all of your other desires, all of your hobbies. Uh, in fact, the, the fact is that the Lord ought to be your hobby if you're going to be a bride, right? So once again, the foundation and the cause of revival is repentance and sanctification. Didn't God tell Moses, take your shoes off? This is holy ground. He didn't want Moses separated from holiness. He had to stand on holy or sanctified ground to be in God's presence. In Luke 3, 2 through 8 says, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Ah, he got along with God too, huh? And he came into all of the region round about the Jordan. Now he can give it away, right? Preaching the baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins. Hmm, we need that. If you're going to be beautiful before the Lord, you need that. And he preached this to God's people, many of whom actually turned against Jesus because their repentance from sin was skin deep, right? And as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ye ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So we notice that the path from the word of the Lord to your heart must be prepared by repentance. This straight path. Don't wobble out of the path, right? Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. So every valley shall be filled, meaning the humble will receive from the Lord. And every mountain and hill shall be brought low, meaning the proud will hold to their sin and receive judgment instead of the revival of Christ in them, just as uh, the faction has, by the way. <clears throat> they had no personal relationship with the Lord because it's only when you're looking at them that they would obey and as soon as they got out of sight, they would do what they wanted to do. So God took them out. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth. 
So, departing from the crooked ways to follow the straight path without stumbling blocks of sin uh, is necessary for the Lord to enter the heart. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Hmm. So, this is all types of men who saw him physically, but not all men saw him with the eyes of their heart. He said, therefore, to the multitudes that went out to be baptized of him, you offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Hmm. So the Pharisaical didn't believe repentance was for them because of the religious pride, just as we can have now. And they didn't, weren't baptized of John. They were too proud. So, bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, he says, and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. Well, lots of people think that whoever their local hero is, you know, uh, but I follow so-and-so, you know, or I follow David, or I follow Michael, or even I follow Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And even now the axe also lieth at the root of the trees. Have you seen them cut off? And we thought some of them were holy. Well, if they were, they wouldn't have been cut off. Well, every tree, therefore, that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Fruit is proven through testing. And these people who are cut off failed. Luke three twenty one and 22 says, Now it came to pass when all the people were baptized that Jesus also having been baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. So you know that John tried to stop Jesus from receiving the baptism of repentance from him. He didn't think he was worthy to dish that out to Jesus. But Jesus said, Thus it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. Wow. So this is important to fulfill all righteousness. And it, it's repentance. So without true repentance, three out of four fall away, as the parable of the sower clearly says. And the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form as a dove upon him, and a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son. In thee I am well pleased. Well, um, is he pleased to dwell beside willful sin? No, I don't think so. So Luke 4, 1-21 says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. That's where he received the baptism of repentance as a demonstration to us. And was led in the Spirit in the wilderness during 40 days. There it is, the 40 days. So it's after the third day, after the seventh day, and um, the 40 days. And again, uh, timing 
plus 40 days, alone with God in both cases, overcoming the devil as a type of the man-child to come, right? So, being tempted of the devil, and he did eat nothing in those days. There it is again. And when they were completed, he hungered. Well, fasting is a good way to get rid of the devil, silence the flesh, weaken the flesh, and so on. Fasting in prayer through alone time with God was the key to overcoming temptations that to us identify sin uh, that most don't even know that they have. And the devil said unto him, If thou art the Son of God, command this stone that it become bread. Well, to us, this would be the temptation to prove our power for self-glory, to feed our flesh, which pretty much is shown in the next verse. And Jesus answered unto him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, To thee will I give all this authority and the glory of them, representing the temptation to have the glory of men. For it hath been delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. So if thou therefore wilt worship before me, it shall all be thine. I guess this is the temptation to gain disciples and authority over them for self-glory, like the factious and the ambitious always do. So this is always bowing the knee to the devil. And Jesus answered and said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he led him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Well, this is being tempted in a very visible place for self-glory, I would suppose. And said unto him, If thou art the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee to guard thee, and on their hands they shall bear thee up, lest haply thy dash thy foot against a stone. So, a temptation to test God's ability to save while being self-seeking, right? And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not make trial of the Lord thy God. Well, as we can see, most of Jesus' temptations were about seeking the glory of men which he, of course, did not do. But there are many who do. They, they like positions because they like the glory of men. They're not going to humble themselves before God and let him make a way for them. They're going to make their own way, kind of like the Pharisees and Sadducees did when they went to Bible school. Mm-hmm. There is jealousy, there's competition, exclusiveness, putting on shows, disrespect, self-seeking, and on and on, such as those who fall into faction among leadership people or otherwise. 
Seeking self-glory is a common temptation for leadership and makes them unqualified for the man-child status or any other leadership position. John twelve forty-two and 43 says, Nevertheless, even of the rulers, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Oh, they wouldn't confess him before men. For they love the glory that is of men more than the glory that is of God. You know, Jesus said qualification is to reject the approval of men to confess him before men. You know, John 5 and 41 says, I receive not glory from men, but I know you that you have not the love of God in yourselves. See, when you have the love of God, you don't have to be in front of men to do anything because you're obeying because He's God and you want to serve Him. I am come in my Father's name and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Well, that was proven true. And the wicked with their fear of rejection did receive the wicked testimony of men. How can you believe who receive glory one of another? And the glory that cometh from the only God you seek not. John 7 and 18. And he that speaketh from himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh the glory of him that sent him... The same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. So, did God send you to say that um, against all of God's commands, or was it from your own glory? Matthew 6, 1-4 says, Take heed that you do not your righteousness before men to be seen of them, else you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore thou doest alms, sound not a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have received their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And thy father, who seeth in secret, shall recompense thee. Okay, back to our text again, uh, verse 13. And when the devil had completed every temptation, he departed from him for a season. So after overcoming selfish temptations by drawing near to God alone, the revival began through him as a type for the man-child today. Verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and a fame went out concerning him through all the region round about. So God could trust him with fame because he was not self-seeking or seeking uh, the glory of men. Uh, But that had to be proven, and it was. Then God knew he could trust him. And, of course, I'm using Jesus as a type of the man-child here. We know he trusted Jesus. And he taught 
in their synagogues and being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and he entered as his custom was into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Well, after overcoming all the temptations through fellowship with the Father, he was anointed to bring the revival. So, verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He hath sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fastened on him. (laughs) Yes, I imagine so. And he began to say unto them, Today hath this scripture been fulfilled in your ears. Hmm. So I say that God uh, warned me to tell you this because your time uh, to be chosen to be in the man-child and the bride body is very short. And as we saw with Jesus, when the man-child came, he chose the bride. So I say go into your spiritual 40 days, representing a time of testing, alone with God, and ask Him to seek out your sin and reveal it to you so that you may reject it. Yes, it may take some temptations of the devil to reveal it to you, but that's okay. God can do that. And uh, He did it for Job. And so Job was cleansed, um, and we should be too, with that pure glowing white robe of the bride, right? And the Lord and uh, Baruch gave an amen to this revelation because I asked them. So we're told that there will be 10 days to two weeks of media darkness during martial law, except to declass criminal activities in an eight-hour video playing over and over. And this is mostly for those who listen to news on TV. The rest of us uh, who probably never watch TV, I don't. Uh, I can't remember the last time I ever saw TV. But um, the rest of us already know what's going on because of the Internet. Uh, And I suggest you use this time to draw near to Father uh, and ask Him to show you any sin. You may have to separate from the Internet, too, because that's what's going to happen, strangely enough. Then renounce and forsake them, uh, believing that they were nailed to the cross, as in Romans 6. And shortly after this time, the man-child reformers will begin to appear, and the bride will be chosen. Uh, God bless you in uh, all that you do, but draw close to the Lord and spend time with him, and let him deal with your old man. The advantages of being in the bride are just tremendous. And this was given through 
Debbie Finsky, 1-8-24. Beware, be watchful, my glory. It was on my heart to ask the Lord that in my time alone with Him this morning, He would allow me to hear Him speak to me. Thank you, Father. Beware of the subtle one. Beware of the pretender who will try to come to you with a voice as the sound of my voice. Beware. He will try to come in your thoughts. He will come with a still, small voice. He will come in your flesh, and He will come to try and deceive you in this time. I say to beware. Be watchful unto yourselves. Beware and be careful to do everything that you have been told to do. This time is crucial, and your light will soon shine forth as the stars. Intense and in great brightness will it shine forth from you. My glory in you, shining forth through you, bringing attention to me, your glory and the lifter of your head. So be lifted up, my people. You have been hearing that the time of my glory coming to be revealed in you is soon. And I say, it is here. I'm standing at the door, ready to make my entrance. This is not the time to yield to temptation, lies, deceptions. Beware. For these will try to speak very loud to you now and in the days ahead of you much louder. So as you have opportunity, hold one to another up and be strong for one another. Yes, we've seen the devil come and try to draw people away after him. Yeah. So I say to you, my glory, beware, be watchful, be obedient and steadfast with a single eye on my glory, ready to shine through you. What glory awaits? Keep your eyes on me, nothing else. What glory awaits? And I asked Father if he would give me a couple of scriptures about our seeking him and waiting on him in our times alone with him and about us being His glory. The first place my finger landed in was Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen. You will seek me and find me when you will search for me with all your heart. Well, that was dead on, wasn't it? And I landed on for me. Yes, we do it for Him. Not only for him, but for him to be in us. She says, thank you for that, Lord. The next scripture came to me uh, a little differently, but it was exciting for me how Father did this. I first landed in Isaiah 47 and 6, which is about God's anger with his people who profaned his inheritance. Well, we know Uh, When the Lord returns in his man-child reformers, he will judge these Edomite haters of their chosen brothers, right? They were testing, right? 
They were sons of the devil to test you, to see if you would depart from the word or not, right? I was like, no, no, this can't be it. I turned my eyes to look directly across to the previous page, which was chapter 46. So it was on the opposite page. And what came to me was the opposite of them is the chosen. Now is when the verse comes out. First the warning, and now is when the verse comes out. How awesome. Isaiah 46, 13. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation. Salvation? Ah, uh, that's the meaning of Jesus. His name means Jah is salvation. And where is he? The next word, in Zion. I will grant salvation in Zion. And that is Jesus in you, right? And my glory for Israel. So, glory to your name, Lord. Amen. And I thought it very interesting how he spoke of his glory, my glory, uh, in this word, because I almost didn't use it, thinking it may just be from myself. But then I heard, use it. Thank you, for, Lord. Thank you. So he is the glory of the Lord and his people. Yes, Lord, we want to seek you to search for you with all of our hearts and come into your very likeness from glory to glory. We are to be your glory on this earth. And by faith, we are your glory, your glorious bride. Thank you for helping us to give you not just our time, but that all of our time with you will be with you and you alone. And I thank you for your great mercy and your great grace towards each of us. Thank you that in your sovereignty you desire us to show forth your glory, to be your glorious spotless bride. And that was her prayer. And she continues, Now help us to be obedient to you, to be uh, to be so watchful and aware of Satan's devices his temptations to lure us away from our time alone with you. We can do all things through you, Jesus, who strengthens us. We thank you that your salvation and your righteousness will not delay. Make us understand the urgency in what is required of us if we want to be in your glorious bride and be your glory as you shine through us on this earth doing the work of you have called us to do all for the glory of your name. Thank you for your grace given to all who are called to be in your bride all over the world. Thank you, Father. Amen. And I say amen, too. And this was a revelation given to an anonymous 9-1-23 bike usage, a prayer life vision. I had a vision of a standard BMX on the floor in a dank 
gloomy garage. There was clutter and items that had collected a large amount of dust. It was possible to make clear writing in the dust. Ah, uh, well, the bike ends up being a prayer life that is ignored and uh, the consequences of it. So I will continue. Then I saw a young man. He was in his room reading and doing tasks. He would then occasionally pick up a manual on bikes and say he liked a particular model. Then he placed it by his side and slept. Well, uh, a bike represents balance, and the manual, I believe, is the Bible, which also represents balance, right? How to stay on that narrow road without uh, tipping off on either side, right? Another day, and not many changes, he grew old and rarely even considered looking at the bike manual anymore. Well, that's true because of so many such goofy doctrines like once saved, always saved, and just accept Jesus and sit on a pew and now you're just waiting. It doesn't really matter what the preacher says or what the Word says. You're just waiting to fly away, right? So the manual is the Bible. He then got old and declared uh, to throw it all out. Uh, his time had gone for that. Amen. And he passed up all that time. And then he never thought of it again. He was caught in his impending death. Then I saw a fit young man who had stories and excitement every moment. All he wanted to do was ride his bike. <laughs> he shared it with everyone. He rode every day, everywhere, and he was constantly happy. Had lots and lots of testimonies, no doubt, right? He had accidents and was seriously hurt, but never stopped riding his bike once he was healed. He never changed because of his age or his other life duties. His family then rode too and independently had a love for it uh, their own way. He got old and couldn't ride, but passionately wanted to and would encourage everyone to ride. He spoke and wrote books and submitted articles to enrich lives with the use of the bike. Then he donated it to young children all just before his death. He and his family all cherished the times together well spent. I then realized that this is our prayer life. Well, the bike is getting close to God. It's a means and a relationship. You can do much more when you use the bike and go places doing more amazing things than uh, it laying on the floor and gathering dust. You could read about a bike, but not ever think about where it could take you. Praying is an adventure. It's real. And when you keep doing it, it will get easier and more in tune with God. 
then when you connect with God, that's all you want to do is to bathe in his presence and talk with him and talk about him with others. He becomes your all, your desires, your wants. He's your only need. I'm convinced, I'm convicted, and a flame kindled to go to the Lord and pray. Pray openly. Pray about everything. Amen. Well, a good parable there. So, let me say, what is this foundation? You know, in the New Testament, sanctification is the Greek word hagiasmos, and it means separated from sin and consecrated unto God. This sanctification has been given to us as a gift through Jesus Christ. It is also something that we attain to through faith in that gift. In other words, the Lord will fulfill it in us if we go after it by faith. Romans 5 and 1 says, Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have had our access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we believe the Lord has given us this sanctification and holiness because of His promises. God can't really bless an individual, nor can He bless a body of people, That's been polluted by the world. If we walk in repentance and faith, the Lord will account it to us as righteousness. But if we walk in rebellion and self-will, the Lord's chastening will be upon us. The bride will have special protection and provision from the Lord. The bride is not all the people of God, as much of the church says. Song of Solomon 6 and 8 on down, it says, There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. There's the one right there. And he was speaking of the bride. There are many people of God whom God loves, but the bride is a special place, has a special place because the bride represents Zion, uh, as we know from Revelation 21. Zion, of course, was only a small part of the parable of God's people in the Old Testament. There was all of Israel, and there was all of Judah, and then there was Zion. And it was very protected So I'd like to briefly review a little about the protection that is afforded the bride. In 2 Kings 18, we have the revelation of the end-time beast's attack upon God's people. The Assyrian Empire and the king of Assyria conquered all of Israel, and those whom they didn't kill, they carried away captive. 2 Kings 18 and 9. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, 
king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. That was the northern ten tribes, right? And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And the king of Assyria carried Israel away into Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded, and would not hear it, nor do it. They conquered all of Judah next, Second Kings 18 and 13. Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended Return from me that which thou puttest on me will I bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah king of Judah three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. But we find that God zealously protected Zion or Jerusalem because it represented something for our day. Assyria was the second of the seven heads of the last beast in Revelation 12 and 3, 13 and 1, and 17, 3 and 9, which consists of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the revived Rome, because the legs went all the way down to the ten toes in our day. So every one of those beast kingdoms represents a revelation that is going to happen in the end time, because today all seven heads are a part of this beast, and all ten toes of that image uh, represented the ten kingdoms. And Assyria, um, as that second head, gives us the revelation of God's protection for the bride Jerusalem. So it's true in the end times, right? Second Kings 19 and 30. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant. That's those that escaped the bondage of the beast, right? And out of Mount Zion they that shall escape. So this is talking about escape from the beast kingdom that is conquering God's people. The zeal of the Lord shall perform this. So the Lord is zealous, but why is he zealous over this particular part of his people and not the rest of his people? 
Why was he not zealous to protect and to destroy the beast before it conquered all of Israel and Judah? It's because of what Zion represents. It represents the bride. Revelation 21 and 9. And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls who were laden with the seven last plagues. And he spake with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, there's the mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem. That's the new Jerusalem. Yes. Coming down out of heaven from God. Well, the bride is manifestly born from above. Everybody claims to be born again, but as you have studied with us, you discovered that this takes three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And um, so the bride, as much as the bride can be, while still on the earth, is manifestly born from above meaning the Word of God that came down from above has been ingested and it has become a part of the bride. Verse 11, Having the glory of God, her light was like unto a stone most precious, as it were a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Having a wall great and high, having twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east were three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So that the, the words of the New Testament have to be our foundation, you know, amen? So what is it about Jerusalem that represents something so holy and so perfect? Well, the wall of Jerusalem represents something. Uh, in the Song of Solomon, the bride, the Shulamite, which means perfected one, said in Song of Solomon 8 and 10, I am a wall. A wall represents sanctification. It represents separation from the world. It represents protection from the world, too. So Jerusalem was encompassed with this wall, and it was uh, a separation, a protection from the beast. And the bride also said of her immature little sister, Song of Solomon 8 and 9, If she be a wall, we will build upon her a turret or a battlement of silver. If she be a wall, sounds strange. Why would the bride be a wall? <laughs> okay, and why did uh, the bride want her little sister to be a wall? Because it represents sanctification, separation from the world unto God. So why would this be something to protect her, little sister? It's because God will defend us if we are sanctified, if we are separated. He will defend us if our hedge is not let down for the enemy to come in and dwell in us. 
either individually or as a body of people. God defends the bride, and he will even defend the little sister before she comes to maturity, if she be a wall, sanctified. Second Kings 19 and 32 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come unto this city, nor shoot an arrow there, neither shall he come before it with shield, nor cast up a mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come unto this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand, that's a hundred and eighty-five thousand men. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, behold, these were all dead bodies. So there is a place of safety in holiness and separation from the world. But there is none for those who walk in their own self-will and rebellion. And then, after Hezekiah became ill, he pleaded with God for his life, saying that he had served the Lord. Second Kings 20 and 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thy house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which was good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out into the middle part of the city, that the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the prince of my people. Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee, and on the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. Hmm. And I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee out and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Well, that's exactly what the rest of the Bible says about the regenerate daughter of Zion. God promises to defend them. And when they walked in righteousness and purity, that wall represented separation and sanctification and protection. Proverbs 11 and 4, Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. Again, the Greek word for sanctification is hagiosmos, which means separation unto God. In other words, purification and separation from the world and from sin unto God. 
The word for saints, hagios, is the root word for sanctification. Saint means sanctified ones. So there are saints, and then there are just Christians. <laughs> saints are the ones who are sanctified, separated from the world unto God. Right? Saints are those people who are separated from the world. And uh, all through the New Testament, the Lord addresses the saints, uh, the separated and sanctified ones. Amen. Hebrews 12 and 14 says, Follow after peace with all men and the sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. Um, sanctification and holiness is the same word, remember. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. We certainly want to see the Lord, don't we? And we want to see Him after this life, but we also want to see Him in this life. 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 but we all with an unveiled face. And there's very few unveiled faces out there because this is the gospel and it's not being told. We all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. Amen. So, without sanctification, we are not going to see the Lord. We won't see Him in the mirror because we have the wrong idea of who He is. And we won't come into His image and we won't ultimately see Him. That's the gospel. However, even the little sister can be sanctified and separated from the world even the little sister can be running after the Lord with all of her heart. The Shulamite was seeking to bring her little sister into the presence of the king, Solomon, who represents our king, the prince of peace, right? Uh, she was uh, protecting and raising her up, just as the bride will do in these days. And Paul says in Hebrews 12 and 14, Follow after peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest there be any man that falleth short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby the many be defiled. Yep, that's what they want. When these people, apostates, uh, fall away and get filled with demons. That's the only thing that drives them is to try to drag down the saints. So many so-called Christians in these days are being defiled by roots of bitterness or by other people who have roots of bitterness. And those who are slanderers and gossipers and backbiters, these people are defiled. They are like Esau who sold his birthright through bitterness, the Bible specifically says. So you need to be careful to remain sanctified and separated from them as we're commanded. Titus 3.10, a factious man after a first and second admonition refuse. In other words, separate yourself from them. 
Hebrews 12 and 16, lest there be any fornicator. Uh, Fornicator has a spiritual aspect here uh, also. And this is uh, someone who has relations with the world and not the Lord. Esau was ordained as a son of Abraham to have relations with the Lord, yet he was having relations with the world and receiving the seed of another kingdom. He was receiving this root of bitterness, which was, of course, from the devil and not from God. Hebrews 12 and 16, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one mess of meat sold his own birthright. Now, I know meat here uh, just means food, but it also brings to mind the thought of flesh, because Esau followed or sought after the flesh. He found that meat was more important than his birthright, which was the inheritance of, that he received because he was a child of Abraham. Hebrews 12 and 17 says, For you know that even when he afterwards desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Well, there isn't going to be a blessing to those who refuse sanctification through the Word. There isn't going to be a blessing to those who choose to receive the seed of the world instead of of the seed of the kingdom. And instead of being separated from the world and its nature and its curse, Esau was rejected. He sold his birthright and forfeited the double portion blessing of the firstborn. And so it is today. We recognize them. They are full of bitterness. Uh, they believe lies. There are people who are considered to be people of God, but who have been reprobated. They do not know the ways of peace and do not follow after peace with all men, as the Scripture says. They have a root of bitterness, and they spread their root of bitterness. So God has rejected them. Hebrews 12 and 17. For you know that even when he afterward desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for a change of mind, which is basically the meaning of repentance, right? Change of mind. In his father, however, uh, in his father was added in by the translator according to his own understanding, but it's not in the original. He, He was the one that couldn't find a change of mind. He. They never change their mind. They're too proud to change their mind. They're too proud to repent. Right? So, and it goes on to say, though he sought it diligently with tears. In other words, he tried later to repent, but was not accepted. He failed the test. So, in other words, Esau himself wanted deliverance from this curse, but he was defiled by a root of bitterness. And, of course, his seed after him was defiled because the sins of the parents are passed on to the children of the third and fourth generation. Exodus 20 and 5 and 
34 and 7, and Numbers 14 and 18, Deuteronomy 5 and 9. So we know that Jesus came to break genetic curses that have been passed on, but Esau, even though he was a seed of Abraham, refused the inheritance that he had received through his father and traded it away just like Judas. Remember how Jacob, Esau's brother, was greatly blessed after he separated himself from Esau? The Lord gave Jacob so much fruit and such great abundance that it surprised Esau when after many years Jacob returned with his wives, children, herds, flocks in Genesis 32 and 33. Bearing much fruit and receiving many blessings is a symbol of being sanctified and separated from that which is unholy, corrupt, and bitter. It's a symbol of being separated from that which has been rejected as accursed. Jacob bore much fruit and received much blessing because he separated himself from those who were not sanctified. And we find this pattern repeated all the way through the Bible. We are all sons of Abraham through faith, and we receive our inheritance through faith. But God demands of us separation, and we see many types and shadows of this in the Scriptures. There are actually two stages of separation. First, God separates His people from the world, and then, second, He separates from His people those who are worldly. And after Abraham was called out from Ur of the Chaldees, which was Babylon, Abraham was later separated from Lot and his family, who initially came with him out of Babylon. And Lot unwisely chose to settle in Sodom, which obviously was not a place of sanctification or separation from the world. And that decision brought a great curse upon Lot and his family. So notice that God called Abraham to separate from the Babylonians, and then Abraham was separated from those who were not living a life that was as holy as his. And another good type is when God separated his people, Israel, in the land of Egypt. He separated them from the Egyptians through the judgments that Moses, the man-child, brought upon the Egyptians. Goshen represents that land where the Israelite was separated from the Egyptian. And we know the first uh, three judgments came upon both the Israelites and the Egyptians. But after God's people had once again received the fear of the Lord, then the rest of the judgments fell only upon the Egyptians. Exodus 8 and 23, And I will put a division between my people and and thy people by tomorrow shall this sign be. It's a sign. A different representation of that is the Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea, where God made a separation of his people from the Egyptians, a separation of the spiritual man from the carnal man. Exodus 14 and 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all the night. 
and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them. That was kind of stupid. (laughs) Into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even all the host of Pharaoh that went in after them into the sea. There remained not so much as one of them. They probably trusted in their God to keep them in the midst of that. And I want to tell you, this is a judgment before God's people go into the wilderness, a judgment upon the wicked who have chased God's people. They think they can go where God's people go, but it's not so. Apostle Paul used that parable to show that in the Red Sea there was a baptism unto death for the Egyptian who represented the old man that had been keeping Israel in bondage. Hebrews 11 and 29 says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do, were swallowed up. Mm-hmm. So, in these days, God's people are once again in bondage to the old man, and once again the Lord is going to send deliverance by the hand of the man-child in the form of judgments on Egypt. And those judgments are going to cause God's people to realize that they need to depart from Egypt and stop submitting to the old man who has been keeping them in bondage. So God separated the Israelites from the Egyptians and brought them into the wilderness. But now he still had to separate the unbelievers from among them. The mixed multitude, right? (laughs) You know, people like to think that uh, only Egyptians are unbelievers, yet uh, unbelievers who complained in the wilderness were the unbelievers of his own people. And God could not bring Israel, even the faithful Israelites, into the promised land of blessing that was flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 31 and 20, Numbers 14 and 8, Exodus 33 and 3. Until all the unfaithful and unbelieving had died in the wilderness. So the righteous people among the Israelites whom Joshua and Caleb represented had to endure a time of trial and tribulation so that these unbelieving, murmuring Israelites would be separated from them. The righteous didn't get to see the blessings that they should have received until that happened because God wasn't going to bless the unrighteous among the righteous who entered into the promised land. Well, it was... It was those people who went through the wilderness, right? Made it through. Whereas their uh, rebellious counterparts uh, died in the wilderness. So other than Joshua and Caleb, it wasn't those Israelites who left Egypt. It was their children who entered into the land of milk and honey. Uh, The blessings, the provisions of God. Their old man shall die in the wilderness, but their, get it, 
their fruit will enter in. Hmm. The people who bear fruit will enter in. So this is a, a process that God does in each and every one of us, too. We need to learn to come out from among the world and be separate because there is no place of blessing without sanctification. And God wants us to separate ourselves from the leaven of the wicked people. Matthew 16 and 12. Then understood they that he bade them not to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Those professional leaders who went to Bible school. (laughs) Even if they call themselves Christians, he wants to separate them from us so that we can receive the blessings. I once asked the Lord, why are there so many Judases and Jezebels rising up? You know, they, they can't help themselves. It's demons in them that rise up and torment the church, speak and rail against the people and the leadership, and argue about doctrine and take authority that they don't have, and all these things. Why is this happening? And the Lord told me, very plainly, I'm doing you a favor. (laughs) I said, how so, Lord? And the Lord answered, because you don't want all these people going into the wilderness with you, do you? And I replied, "Uh, no, I don't. (laughs) Okay, so I do know that in the wilderness there will still be some of these people try the people of God, because when Jesus chose the twelve, one of them was the son of perdition, Judas. Didn't I choose you twelve, he said. Of course, Judas had a ministry, but there are many more uh, than we evidently need uh, from what the Lord told me. He is certainly revealing and separating them from his people in these days. So God's people also need to understand and cooperate with God in this process of separation because this wasn't a job for only Moses or just the elders of Israel. This was a job for all Israel to do. We're going to see from the Scriptures that we need to separate ourselves from those who are leaven and are keeping us from being sanctified. Amen? Sanctification is uh, needed individually and corporately. First of all, individually, we are to 2 Corinthians 6 and 14, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship have righteousness and iniquity? Or what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what portion hath a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement hath a temple of God with idols? For we are a temple of the living God. Even as God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, we know that the Lord walks in us uh, to uh, the degree that the Word of God is living and active in us. 17. 
Wherefore, come ye out from among them, and be ye separate. There it is, saith the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be to you a father, and you shall be to me sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And then, corporately, we are to be sanctified as the body of Christ. Who's in the body of Christ? He is. To the extent He doesn't dwell there, you're not the body of Christ. Who is He? He's the Word made flesh. That's right. So the bride is so beautiful to God because it is a body of people who became separated from the rest of Israel because of their purity and holiness. And by the way, the Greek word hagiosmos is translated as both holiness and sanctification in the New Testament, as we said. Holiness and sanctification both mean separation from the world and from that which is impure unto God. So when Israel went into the wilderness, they had already been separated from the Egyptians, which basically represented salvation. And when you go through the Red Sea, the Egyptian is cut off. It is your water baptism. So these are people who are what we call today saved. However, they still weren't sanctified as a body. Yes, there were people among them who were sanctified and always walked in righteousness, but as a body, they weren't sanctified and couldn't come into the blessings of God. They had to go through the wilderness to filter these people out. (laughs) So God brought them through the trials in the wilderness to prove them. He was going to show who was part of the sanctified body and who it was who would refuse being sanctified and separated from the world. And Exodus 32 and 1 says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mount, the people gathered together uh, unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods. Well, the word for gods there is Elohim. And it's the same word that they use for the true God because what they really wanted was something visible that the flesh could follow. Our God is invisible for a reason. He doesn't want us making pictures or statues of Him to bow down to or to follow. He wants us to know Him by the Spirit and not by the flesh. The flesh won't obey God. He wants us to walk by faith, and faith is when you don't see, but you obey anyway. Exodus, more blessed is they that believe, right? So, Exodus 32 and 1, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron, and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us, For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what has become of him. Well, God delayed this in order to try them, to see if they would turn aside out of the way, and that's just what they did. Exodus 32 and 2. And Aaron said unto them, 
Break off the golden rings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden rings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received it at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made it a molten calf. And they said, These are thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Well, obviously, it was just a pile of gold. (laughs) And they had made a god after a fleshly image that impressed them, but had nothing to do with Elohim. So, uh, Exodus 32 and 5, And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play because now they had a God of their own making, and therefore they could do what they wanted to do. They didn't have to obey the rules. So you know what that does? It automatically throws you right into the flesh. So you know there are many false gods that people proclaim to be the Lord God because they permit them to live in a way that pleases their flesh. But they don't want to read the Bible. (laughs) Strangely enough, Exodus 32 and 7, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, notice they aren't God's people anymore, thy people that thou broughtest up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and they have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed unto it and said, These are thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So this molten calf was probably a replica of Apis, the calf god of Egypt. And they knew of a god in Egypt, and when Moses wasn't around to lead them, they quickly reverted back to their Egyptian god. Yeah. So, Exodus 32 and 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Well, not all of them were stiff-necked, but a majority of them were. And now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation." So we see that when they were all together as a body, good and bad, God condemned them. There needed to be a separation of that which was good uh, in their midst, and God agreed to this a little further on. Exodus 32 and 11. Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? that thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak, saying, For evil did he bring them forth, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. 
Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidst unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give to your seed, that they may inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he said he would do unto his people. The Lord didn't consume them at that time. But he did lay down some conditions, Exodus 32 and 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoso is on the Lord's side, let him come unto me. Well, this is interesting. Evidently, there were some who were on the Lord's side during all of this. There were people who didn't believe the golden calf was God. (laughs) And all of the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Well, there you go, the priesthood, right? They gathered unto him. The Levites representing something in the New Testament. Exodus 19 and 5 says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be mine own possession from among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So God's true people are a holy people, meaning a separated from the world and sanctified people. And the Levites were separated to be God's own possession. And in this situation, the Levites were not in agreement with the rest of the body of the Israelites about the golden calf. So Moses said in Exodus 32 and 26, Whoso is on the Lord's side, let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi, the holy nation, the priests of God, gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Put ye every man his sword upon his thigh, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. What does this represent? Uh, It represents a sanctification of the people who had not fallen into this worship of a false Jesus, a false God. Now, we know in the New Testament that we are forbidden to use a physical sword against our enemies. Matthew 26 and 52 Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again the sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. But we do have a sword which we are commanded to use, and our sword is the word of God. Ephesians 6 and 13, Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand... Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, with all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's the sword of your spirit. So, when you are in the midst of a body, and some of those people are unholy, they are what is blocking you from receiving the blessings as a body, because God cannot bless the body without also blessing these evil, wicked people. We just read that it was Moses and all the priests of God who were called to sanctify the body. And as a kingdom of priests of God, we're all called to use the sword of the word and separate and sanctify the body. If someone who is called a believer comes unto you but is walking in willful sin, the Bible tells you what to do about it. 1 Corinthians 5 and 9, I wrote unto you in my epistle to have no company with fornicators. Not at all meaning with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous and extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. But as it is, I wrote unto you not to keep company if any man that is named a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner with such a one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do with judging them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Put away the wicked man from among yourselves. You are to separate from them, as we have commanded too. Ephesians 5 and 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather even reprove them. And are the words, you take your sword and you point out to this person that they are one of the people who is stopping the body from receiving the great blessings that God wants to pour out. God couldn't bless Israel while they were in Egypt. He had to separate them from that body. But then there was still something that was blocking them from receiving the great blessings from God in the wilderness. And it was those unbelievers in their midst. And even though they were Israelites and they would today be called Christians, quote unquote, they were blocking the blessings from the body and something had to be done about it. So would you take the sword? The Bible says that we are cursed if we don't use our sword. Jeremiah 48 and 10. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord negligently. And cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. Would you sit on that sword? Or would you use it to correct the brother or sister who comes to you with slander, gossip, hatred, judgment, uh root of bitterness against the body. Would you obey the word and correct that person? Some people have a spirit of rejection and know they sit and listen and they're not going to do a thing. 
and they get taken out too. Because uh, rejection is a lying spirit. Matthew 18 and 15. And if thy brother sin against thee, go show him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he hear thee not, take with thee one or two more, that at the mouth of two witnesses or three every word may be established. And if he refuse to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he refuse to hear the church also, let him be unto thee as the Gentile and the publican. So, uh, for instance, would you tell the brother who is assaulting the elders, look, it is forbidden for us to receive an accusation against an elder without witnesses. Would you correct a brother or sister in your midst who is committing fornication and yet they are sitting right next to you in a church pew, being accepted by the rest of the body? Would you be the one with the sword to do uh, what was necessary for the local body to be blessed? Is your allegiance to your friend or is your allegiance to God? Um, is it more important to build up the body to receive the blessings of God because it is holy? Or is it more important to keep the friendship you have with your friend? Remember, he told the Levites, you take your sword and you go find your neighbors. You go find your, your um, mate, your so on and so forth. You take them down. They had more um, allegiance to the Lord. So I believe most of Christianity would think, that's not my job. Well, that's the preacher's job. No, that's not what we are seeing here, and that's not what we see in the rest of the Scriptures either. So Exodus 32 and 28 says, And the sons of Levi did according to the word of the Lord, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. And Moses said, Consecrate yourselves, there it is, today to the Lord. Yea, every man against his son and against his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. There wasn't going to be a blessing until there was this separation and the sword was applied to these people who had caused the problem. Exodus 32 and 30 said, And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord, peradventure I shall make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And that's also confirmed in the New Testament. He pardoned. He did not bring wrath upon the whole body because he wanted to bring wrath upon those who sinned. The trials that they were about to go through were going to reveal those murmurers and unbelievers among them. 
And through these trials, those people were put to death in the wilderness. Well, we've already been in our little wilderness here for the bride and the man-child and so on. We've been in our little wilderness, and these people have been put to death. It was the Word of God that killed them. So those who sinned against him, those who worshipped in the false uh, worshiped the false god and polluted the body, these people bore their judgment. He said, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And God is still doing this in the New Testament. Revelation 22 and 18, I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto them, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city which are written in this book. And Revelation 3 and 5, He that overcometh shall thus be arrayed in white garments, and I will in no wise blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And Exodus 32 and 34. And now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Okay, when the Lord is coming to visit, we've seen the visitation verses about His coming in these days, and a great shaking that happens, and the destruction of the wicked that He brings with Him. Yes. So those people who died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, their murmuring, and their lack of sanctification, God cleaned them out. God was their provider that whole time, but they still rebelled against the Lord. Exodus 32 and 35, And the Lord smote the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. The truly righteous people in their midst had to suffer for these other people because there had been no sanctification of the body. Think about the Joshua's and the Caleb's who were going through the wilderness with these people and suffering along with them. They actually deserved to go and walk into the promised land, yet they were suffering. There has to be a separation so that we can come into the great miracles, great revival, and great blessings of provision that are just ahead of us for the people of God. Another trial that God used to separate between the righteous and the rebellious Israelites was the Korah rebellion. If you remember, Korah took it upon himself to be a leader in Israel. Ha ha, we've seen those come and go too. Even though that position wasn't given to him by God. Exactly so. The faction always pushes one of them self-willed, uh, proud people up there to be the leader, right? Yet Moses was someone who never wanted the authority that the Lord gave him. Exodus 4 and 10. 
And Moses said unto the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh a man dumb, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt speak. And he said, O Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. So Moses considered himself to be an inadequate and was trying to convince God to send somebody else. So why did so many people follow Korah? I'm suspecting that Korah was a smooth, persuasive talker and maybe even good-looking, and the people just followed him because... But they, they, they think about all the miracles that God has had done through Moses, who had slow of tongue and evidently not quick-witted or, or not eloquent. So who did God choose to do that? Well, these slick-tongued people, they never have signs and wonders. Have you noticed? None of the factious leaders had these signs and wonders. Hmm. Wow, that's right. So Numbers 16 and 19 says, And Korah assembled all the congregation against them, Moses and Aaron, unto the door of the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves. Well, this represents sanctification. From among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Hmm. So the Lord didn't want to consume all of them. He wanted to consume those who were taking sides with Korah. So he tested them. (laughs) Yeah. Number 16 and 22. And they, that's Moses and Aaron, fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? Well, obviously the people had the choice of whom to follow. But while they were one body and in rebellion, the Lord was considering the whole body as perpetrators. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. In other words, separate yourselves from among these people so I can protect you, so I can bless you, so I can chasten them. Number 16 and 25, And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from uh, the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs. So be separate from all of their thoughts and their doings, right? Lest you be consumed in all of their sins. If you're touching something, you are not separated, are you? So they got them up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents. 
and their wives and their sons and their little ones. It's amazing how that these wicked people destroy their whole families. You just watch them and you will see. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the ground open its mouth and swallow them up, with all that appertaineth unto them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall understand that these men have despised the Lord. So we have certainly seen the wicked going to hell while alive. (laughs) It's very obvious. Uh, I've shared with you in the past that being swallowed alive by the earth represents being swallowed up by the flesh. And they are. Their lusts just go berserk, you know. First Timothy 5 and 6, But she that giveth herself to pleasure is dead while she liveth. We're not here to please the flesh or to be consumed by the flesh. Yet people who are in rebellion against God will be delivered over to their flesh. They will be unable to overcome that flesh because of their rebellion. The Lord is saying to separate yourself from people who live after the lusts of their flesh so that you're not swallowed up by the curse that's upon them. It has to be important to us that God's body be holy and separate from these people because people in willful disobedience need to be judged. And of course, if they are repentant and if they are turning away from their sin, then we should encourage them. But if they are happy to sit in the midst of their sins and want to use doctrine to justify themselves and, of course, make disciples, then they need to be separated. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, even as you are unleavened. And he commanded us there to separate from these people so the whole body is not leavened or considered by God to be leavened. In whatever place you are, you always want that body to come into the blessing and provision of God. But when God reveals these people and you can see that he has turned them over to be consumed by their flesh, then you need to make a separation. And if you don't, their curses will be upon you. Or, at the very least, you will not enter into the blessings. So God wants a holy people, a holy body, holy individuals. If you know people who are committing sins, such as those mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, the Lord demands that you separate yourself from them. And if you don't separate yourselves from them, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And also 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says the same thing. So repent, turn away uh, from these wicked people, 
who don't obey the rules that God has laid down very obviously, and you can be among those blessed. Amen. Well, Father, thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for your your wisdom from your word, and thank you, Lord, that, that you will bless your people who separate themselves even behind the broad walls of Zion. Praise be to God. Amen. All right. God bless you, saints. We'll do this again soon. Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water made me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh, Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe Mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night, what will be my guiding light? The shining rays of red. Seated for all time I am yours and you are mine Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe For your mercy stands and your word is true Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, my Lord Jesus.